ramped up with 800 milligrams of and uh, should be able to pull the sermon off, no problem. Um, I do want to begin this morning praying for uh, a family, I'm sorry, it just hits me right away, um, a family in um, the Haverford High School, Haverford High School just had their graduation, and it's been a really nice, joyous week of graduation parties and um, all that stuff, but uh, one child yesterday took his own life, and um, so we just want to begin by praying for that family, sorry. Holy Spirit, we can't imagine, we can't imagine the pain that that would, the pain that that would bring, the, the questioning and all that stuff, the pain that that child suffered as they went to that end, to that degree, to end their, their emotional distress. And so we ask that you would... Uh, pour out your blessings in it. that's a strange thing to ask in such a weird horrific situation but we pray that you would pour out your blessings and your peace upon that family that you would over time sort of pick up the pieces and put the puzzle together for them help it all to come together in, in only the way that you can because we can't explain it that you would help them to make sense or at least some semblance of what's happened in their lives right now and this loss. And we pray for the students, all the students in the high school um, and what this might do to them. We just pray that they would, uh, that it would bring them together, that they would, it would make them deeper people, that it would make them more concerned that they would be more listening, less concerned about all the garbage in the world, and much more concerned about each other and life and happiness and growth and things like that. We just pray that you bless that family, especially right now, as they go through this very, very difficult time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, it is a tragedy. Um, and I don't mean to sound flippant. Let's, let's go on from that and let's, let's have a good morning. Um, and let's, let's go through our sermon. If you haven't been with us, we've been in uh, this sermon series called Ruined, Ru- uh, Renovation of the Heart. Or it's from the book, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. But Ruined to Renovation, we've, we've been calling this. And uh, we've been here for 20 sermons so far. That's quite an accomplishment for all of us. So... Um, Let's, uh, let's listen well this morning, because I think God has a lot to say to us. Um, Plato, uh, way back when, you know, Plato, wrote an allegory of a cave where he uh, imagines people are imprisoned from birth, right? And, and they're chained, and they're forced to gaze at the wall in front of them in this cave, and they're unable to look to the right or the left at anybody around them, or even at themselves at, at any level. And behind them is a fire, uh, and, and in front of that fire, in between them and the, the fire, there's a puppet show being played out. And uh, they're only able to see the shadows that are left on the wall of the cave. They can't really see anything else uh, but that being played out in front of them. And the puppeteers' voices are echoing off the cave's walls, so they, they believe that their voices are coming from these shadows in front of them. And these shadows are the only reality that these prisoners have, have ever known. 
And so they've, they've never seen anything else and they don't realize that they're shadows of objects in front of a fire. That's all they are. And they're much less that these things are objects that are inspired by what's actually happening up on, on, the, on the surface of the earth, outside in the sunshine and all that kind of stuff. They, they can't see any of that. They've never experienced it. And Plato then supposes that maybe one of these prisoners is freed Right, and he'd be he'd look around at that moment, and he would see the fire, and it would blind him, and so he wouldn't be able to see all the things that were making shadows uh, at that moment. And if he were told at that moment that uh, what he was now seeing is actual reality, he wouldn't believe it. Instead, he would want to run back to that which he's accustomed. He'd want to go sit back down and be reshackled because it feels safe. And if he did so, Plato supposes or suggests that somebody could just drag him out of the cave and up to the service uh, by force where the sunlight would blind him then. And eventually his eyes would come into focus and all that kind of stuff. And he would start to think that the world outside up in the sunshine was superior to the world inside. And uh, he'd have pity then on the other prisoners. And he'd want to go back down uh, into the cave um, and bring them up as well into the sunlight. But as he would go back down into the cave, he would be blinded by the darkness because he's been out in the sun for so long. And the other prisoners would infer from his blindness, uh, his difficulty to see that the journey out of the cave had harmed him so that they would not want to go out. And therefore Plato uh, figures or assumes that anybody trying to drag them out, they would kill because they didn't want to be harmed. And this whole allegory, this whole picture of this cave and this life in the cave symbolizes the world. So the cave is the world that we live in, right? In, uh, according to Plato, the prisoners are those who inhabit the world, us. And the chains represent the ignorance of these people, which interferes with seeing the true reality out there. And the shadows represent what people see in the present world, right? That those are just shadows. They're not actually real. And the freed prisoner represents... Those in society who uh, seem to have seen the physical world for what it truly is, and that's just an illusion. They're the ultra-spiritual people, right? Now, ideas are very powerful. We've been talking a lot about ideals, ideas in, in this sermon series. And this allegorical sort of idea that Plato put forth rooted itself in our worldview and has influenced humankind for centuries. It influences you even though you don't know it. Maybe you've thought about it, but for many of us, we don't think about it. Outside of Jesus, Plato may be the next most influential person in history, right? Uh, Platonic thought, this uh, allegory of this cave, birthed Gnosticism. And you may not know what that is, but we'll define it. And uh, it's, it's, Gnosticism is something that the New Testament writings preach strongly against and which the church still to this day still preaches against and battles against. The thought that the bodily reality that we live in isn't the true reality. That the body is evil. And that it's wor- this world is just a shadow land. That it's a falsehood. You know, and that there's some special truth that everybody needs to find outside of the one in which we live. And this is why the New Testament claims that Jesus came in bodily form. You ever notice how very clear they are on that? That God 
is incarnate in Christ, that, that, that God became flesh, He became a man and walked among us, was so unique and so powerful and so shocking to the people of that time because in their estimation, God would never, ever, ever debase Himself. He would never commingle with this ignorant, unreal uh, world but is on some higher plane out there of reality, unattainable without special knowledge. Many other religions, major religions of the world are influenced by Gnosticism. Islam itself is very Gnostic in thought. Uh, when, you, when you look at this, the, the, the Al-Quran, it is brought down as a book. And God never interacts with, with uh, mankind, never interacts with this world. He sends the book down. So if you imagine me throwing this Bible way out, you know, far from me out into the world, that's, that's the idea of Islam. In Christianity, the Word becomes flesh and comes down and touches us, right? It touches us. It interacts with us. There's a very big difference, all right? Um, sorry, I went off script. Um, but, so it's, it's a big deal uh, that, that we say that Jesus came in bodily form, right? Uh, and this th- thinking deemed the physical world as evil, right? It, it, as evil or base, and, uh, and, and only through some special, you know, you know intellectual higher knowledge that can you climb out of this unreal world and attain some divine status or place, right? But the Christian worldview is a very practical, real worldview. The Christian worldview is that this world's created by God and one in which He interacts with it one in which he loves. And if you go back to Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, he says that he created it and he deemed it good. That you are good. That tree out there is good. <laughs> right? That there's a design to it. Study Fibonacci numbers and you start to figure out there's a design to everything. Right? Even when it doesn't look like it's designed. Even organic structures have some sort of a, a, a design behind them. So it was revolutionary when John wrote in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Amen. Amen. We have seen His glory. In other words, we've touched Him. We've talked with Him. We've eaten fish with Him. We waited on the trail while He went off into the woods to relieve Himself. I'm not trying to be silly. It is real. He had a body. We've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Amen. We are embodied beings, right? Living life in created bodies, not some strange shadow land. Not some false reality. Jesus came in a body. God incarnate. God in the form of man entered our reality and walked around with us. And he's constantly, still, even till today, he is constantly incarnating himself in us. Even now. Because as we come into Christ, what did he promise us? He promised us the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see the life of Christ being incarnated in our bodies. Taking on his character. Becoming Christ-like. That's what we kind of like to call it in the Christian church. And in that light... 
the importance of Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, two verses that kind of we've been circling around quite a bit, they take on more significance. Listen to them. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, your spiritual or, or your, your true and proper worship. I, I always get confused reading the new version because I'm like, I, I memorized this in a different version. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Great verses. We talked last week a lot about our will and how it's integral in forming our character, Right? And we, we seek to conform and surrender our will to Jesus. And that includes being responsible with what we do and how we live in our bodies. That has largely to do, though, with where we place our mind, what we do with our thoughts, right? Where we set our will or what we set our will to. And our part in spiritual formation, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is to not actively conform ourselves to the patterns of this world. All the groupthink out there that we talked about last week. All that groupthink that everybody's doing that is not necessarily correct. In other words, take every thought captive to Christ and making it obedient to Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Or, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And that is in the active voice. That's our part. That's what we do. I, I actively do not conform myself to these things. Now the passive voice in that passage reveals that in, in this process we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that is God's part. So our part is to surrender our will to His. His part is to transform us. We are, in other words, participatory with God in the process of being changed. But ultimately, it's His work in our hearts which uh, brings about renewal in us, change in us. We actively turn away from, or we repent from, if you remember we defined it that way, from wrong patterns, uh, wrong arguments, wrong thinking in this, of this world, and we submit ourselves to Him. And, and in the power of the Word and the Spirit, we are changed. Just like Rob was talking about, he, he is being changed. And I've had that conversation with quite a few of you that are really experiencing deep spiritual change as a result of practicing this stuff, walking with Jesus well in this stuff. So today there are two passages which govern our time together. The first, first is uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And you were bought with a high price, by the way. Therefore, honor, your, honor God with your bodies, Right? Honor God with your bodies. Do we do that, right? <laughs> I can name for you a, a few ways that I don't do that. As we said last week, when we come under the Lordship of Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in our bodies, constantly leading us back into truth, counseling and guiding us along the way to place our focus on, uh, of, of, of our mind's eye on Christ, on His message, on living this out. 
And then we have Romans 6, 6 through 14. It says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So remembering last week that no matter what the naked emperor tells us, the naked emperor being Satan, no matter what he tells us, sin no longer has any more control in our lives and our bodies than we give it. Due to the power of Christ in our life. And as is the case with Plato's cave, groupthink isn't necessarily right. We are embodied now with the power of God to overcome and live in victory. We really truly are. We've been crucified with Christ and set free from sin. Since it continues, it says, in the same way, and this is a great verse to memorize, by the way, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought to, from death to life and offer every part of yourself, 100%, 110%, right? Every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Now, with those truths in mind from those passages, what we seek as followers of Christ is an inner transformation in Christ. Taking on His character so much so that the outer life, the behavioral life, the one that you all see around me and my community sees around me is affected and formed in Him as well. That I start to bleed Jesus to everybody around me that I look like Him, that I decide to live like Him, that we naturally and without thinking act in the body as Jesus did. What would Jesus do? I don't even have to ask the question because I'm so filled with Him, it's just coming out of me. Christ-likeness lived in the body becomes an increasingly natural state of being for the maturing Christian. And therefore, the unnatural, ungodly inclinations of the body which inhabit it must be eliminated. They must be dealt with. And we refer to that in spiritual language as crucifixion or self-denial or dying to self. Uh, The killing off of the control of the desires and the passions which have that we've allowed to run rampant and have usurped the rightful place of Christ on the throne of life within our bodies. Desire and passion in itself, we're not like killjoys. Desire and passion in itself isn't evil, right? But they make terrible masters. Running by our feelings, just what we want, what we want, what we want. That's terrible masters. Our desires, our passions, our feelings have to come under the lordship of Jesus. And that's the only healthy way to live. Contrary to Gnostic thought, the body isn't evil. It's good. 
It's good. Mine is particularly good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. God created it. God created it. It's not even the source of sin, which you may have thought it was. It's not the source of sin. Although sometimes we involve the parts of our bodies in sinful actions. We train it. We do. We train it. Even if we don't think about that fact, you are constantly training your body to react to life. We condition it, right? We condition it, making it used to and dependent sometimes on things which are contradictory to the life of Christ in us. The extreme being the heroin addict. We train our body and we have physical, physiological responses to what we've trained it to need. But we do that on very small and different levels all the time. Even emotional levels. And these are the result of our desires and our passions. The wrongful thoughts we give our minds to or or our will is set on um, which forms our character. And that's all played out in the body. Therefore, the body, it would seem, becomes one of the greatest barriers to conformity in Christ, although it's more of an internal, mental, spiritual, emotional battle than it is an external physical one, but it does have its ramifications in the physical world. Now, a word of caution. I want to stop right there, and I want to give you a word of caution. What we're not speaking of right now is a works-based righteousness that creates angry, self-righteous people. That's not what we're talking about. We're not preaching a legalistic gospel where we have to earn our salvation by what we do, that we think that we can get into the good graces with God just by how well we live. That's not the message of the church. It's not the message of the Scriptures. This is beyond moralism. Moralism is just, that's cheap salesmanship, right? Ephesians 2 makes this abundantly clear. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. We didn't do anything to get it. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Now, what that means is that salvation for me is a movement of, God, of grace from God to me. To us. That we did nothing to achieve our salvation. Right? Rather, as it says earlier in the same passage, chapter 2, it says, we were made alive in Christ. Remember, that's passive voice. Something's been done to us. We were made alive in Christ in our spiritual deadness. So I didn't, like, do it all right, and now suddenly I'm allowed into heaven. No, that's not the point. That's not how it works. So we, we don't achieve our right relationship with God by anything that we do. He does the work of salvation in us totally, and we only receive it by faith, which in itself is a gift. But we can't ignore also Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 of that same section, which says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's after salvation, right? That's after the fact. These good works are a result of the salvation that has been done in us, or wrought in us. It's a grateful response, a worshipful response to God's grace in our lives. It's like, wow, God loved me enough, I better love you enough. Right? 
Justification is the act of salvation done in us. God justifies us in Christ. It's a legal term that says we've been set free by the judge. But sanctification is the purification process, the the partnership with God towards good works that are prepared in advance for us to do. We're growing in Christ towards being of great use in His kingdom. we got a purpose and things to do. It's good to have work for your hands, right? It's good to have your mind occupied. But sometimes the trained habitual inclinations of the body hinder our progress forward in kingdom living, right? The wrongly conditioned body runs ahead of good intention and stands in the way of our doing good. Our body's conditioned inclination towards personal comfort and personal pleasure stand in the way of a kingdom focus. The body should be seen as a creation of God and and should be cherished as such, right? It should be cared for and nurtured in healthy ways. We should always care for it. It should be a servant of Christ, but so often we allow it to become our master. And there are places in my life that I struggle with this. This is where we can thank God for His grace, though, right? His constant grace upon us. Since we often overlook the body and its role in spiritual formation, we oftentimes place ourselves at the center of the universe of our lives, and in turn, we worship our body instead of its creator, with our body. And from this is born an addiction to sensuality, the pursuit of physical pleasure or or comfort, in all of its forms, at greater or lesser degrees. But as Romans 6, 8 says, now if we died with Christ, then we believe that we will also live with Him. Meaning that we must come to terms with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 5 and 6. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in, in a, accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And the mind governed by the flesh is death. It's death. I mean, nobody's trying to be a killjoy here. It's just a spiritual truth. It's a spiritual axiom. It's something that you can't avoid in life. The mind governed by the flesh is death. It just is. But the mind governed by the spirit of life and peace, that just is. Realizing that to live a life in subservience to the flesh, that is, with bodily desires as master over me, is to invite spiritual death into my life. An unnatural state of the, of the redeemed person, by the way. It's, it's, it's always living in angst because of that. The mind dulled, you know, becoming lifeless. And this is true in the pursuit or, or, or the overindulgence in any sensuality, be it food or alcohol or sex or relationships or just plain any comfort, really. The more you give yourself to it, over to it, there's a deadness of feeling generated in us and the expressions of these things become more perverse and more extreme in their expression. You need more of this or more of that. Think of gateway drugs and more powerful drugs later. That's what we're talking about. Think about this in the context of a nice hotel, right? Five-star hotel. When you first experience a five-star hotel, my parents took us to uh, Bali, to a five-star hotel. 
I'm telling you, that's something that everybody should do once in their life. It was beautiful. It was wonderful, right? But the first time you experience a five-star hotel, it's absolutely incredible. It's, 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 it's overwhelming. And any small mistake on the staffing part, if they make a mistake, you know, it doesn't really matter. You don't, you don't care, right? It's all overlooked. All the wonders of it overshadow the fact that they forgot to put a mint on your pillow that night, right? You couldn't care less the first night or the second night, maybe. Whereas before, you never expected such a detail, right? You never. I mean, as a matter of fact, you have gone to bed every single night and your wife has never stuck a pillow mint on your pillow. Never. Not once has she done that for me. Oh, for shame. Right? <laughs> but once you've had it, once you got your pillow mint, your body is used to that. Your mind is used to that. Let the maid forget that mint, and you're onto the phone to the front desk. Where is my pillow mint? I pay a lot of money for this hotel. Where's my pillow mint? Spend too much time on the beach eating off that menu for that hotel, and eventually you become bored. You need more. You need something different. The filet mignon starts to taste like flank steak, bought at Acme. It's the natural progression of things, right? That's a deadness. That's deadness setting in. It's too much of a good thing. It's a natural axiom. God's not telling us anything that isn't just normal. What's it going to take to satisfy? The answer is always more. More. I need more. Paul says in Romans 8, 7 and 8, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as hostile, but when I allow myself to be governed by the flesh, I'm actually being hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If my desires have taken the throne of my life, I find myself hostile to God and the body reinforces this in its natural inclinations since it's been conditioned in them. It's what I want and it's what I expect and it's, it's, it's produced in me a false felt need. Everything I feel I need, I don't really need, by the way. Did you know that? That's part of growing up, right? Oh, I don't really need that. And that person, although the the lights are still on, given that Christ has done a work of salvation in them, there is this constant state of angst in that kind of a person, given that they simply can't please God. There's something internal in you that just can't settle. Attention's been diverted from your gaze on Christ to your gaze on this false felt need, this thing that's become your idol, that you've allowed to control yourself. Pleasing God is humanity's purpose. It's just our ultimate purpose is to worship. Our end goal is to worship Him in all that we are and all that we do. And as Romans 12 puts it, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's not something strange. That actually is very life-giving to be about doing that. 
However, the fruit of the Spirit we spoke of in past weeks, including self-control and self-denial, enable a person to enjoy life's pleasures without bringing about this lifelessness, this deadness in us. Life can be enjoyed in its fullness. I can enjoy the filet mignon and then not take another one for quite a while and still enjoy it again later. And it still holds that flavor and it's always satisfying. Our bodies are energy factories. It's kind of hard to be addicted to food when you've got to eat food, right? They take in things to excess energy. They must be fed. I can only liberate and use energy through my body. I liberate the energy of potato chips, as you all know that I love my potato chips, to make my body run, maybe not the best fuel, but too many potato chips and I flood the engine. It's not good, right? I access the energy of my body by choice. It's the place of my dominion and my responsibility. It's through my body in which I live and I experience the world. It's part of who I am and it's essential to my identity as a person. I occupy space and time through this body. I, the, you know, and I also uh, interact with other bodies through it. I must be responsible with it. I make it subservient to Christ in order to be responsible with all those other bodies and, and the influence the world are, uh, to influence the world around me for Christ. Paul even speaks of making his body a slave in order to be able to preach and live the gospel strongly in 1 Corinthians 9.27. One of the problems that I face in the body is I run into other bodies and factors which lie beyond my control. I don't control those other bodies, only my body. Like little kingdoms clashing, right? We all want what we want. Was that James we were talking about? James? Yeah, James says that, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. I want what I want, so I clash with others. Which is why Christians are called, listen carefully to this, called to one body. You are called to one body, under one kingdom, under the reign of one king named Jesus. A kingdom where we follow one voice, which dictates what is healthy and what is good for all of us. So we don't get to decide what's healthy and good. This does. This does. That is why so many people out there trying to redefine the Scriptures or throw parts of the Scriptures out don't work. That's destroying the unity of the body. God gets to decide these things. Oftentimes, these clashes produce feelings of jealousy and anger and fear and resentment in us. If, if these aren't rectified or dealt with in love, they settle into our bodies in an outward language we call body language. Right? We all know what that means. You've heard people say before, too, that they, they've claimed to be hurt by others. And, and some ch- Christians say, I've, I've been hurt by other churches and all that kind of stuff. And as a result, we make agreements. I'll never let that happen to me again. Right? And we adopt strategies to keep people back. These agreements, these are spiritual agreements, settle into our bodies in language which communicates how open and joyful or loving or accepting or calm we're going to be 
Or maybe better said in the negative, how angry and bitter and sad and disinterested and prideful we are going to be. Arms crossed, rolling our eyes, not making eye contact, standing off alone in a room, not showing up to things, hands in the pocket, the dead stare, etc. and so on and so forth. These all communicate where we're coming from. We develop body armor. And body armor is not really trust, is it? It's not living in trust. Character seen in how we hold ourselves. In how our bodies stand at the ready to interact with other bodies. In body life. Body language can be clear, can be very clear from some people. But it also can be drastically misread. We've got to give people a break a little bit sometimes when we're trying to... We've got to verbally communicate sometimes to make sure we're reading things right. Because it can also be a sign in another person that there's something going on with us. Maybe we are, by how we interact with or how we're treating somebody else, helping to develop defenses in them. We can't understand why they're so distant since we're not being honest that what, that what we've done uh, has been, been to drive them away, has, has treated them wrongly, has been sinful in, in and of itself. Or sometimes we think that there's something wrong with somebody, but then we, we get clarification and we find out it's not between you and them at all, that they're, they're, they're bothered by something else. There's something else going on in their life that you can actually pray for them for. But oftentimes we run away thinking, well, they're just being jerks. And we don't ever clarify. Unity's destroyed. Body language isn't an exact language art, <laughs> Right? But suffice it to say, we only have control of our own hearts, our own minds, our own will, and our own bodies. And we must think through these things as Christians really strongly, really well, which includes using our bodies from mouth to stance to communicate well and to be free of sinful bondage in them. Christ's incarnation in the world is of paramount importance in all of this. Not only in the issue of salvation, as John, uh, 1 John 4 says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not exalt and acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That is a direct attack on the Gnostic thought that was so pervasive in that time. But also his incarnation is important in the issue of sanctification, how he's being incarnated in me and you now in my body. Since 1 John 4 also says in verse 17, in this world we are like Jesus. As I walk around and interact with you in my body, I am supposed to be like Jesus, right? Embodied beings reflecting the love and the life of of Christ to others around us through our bodies, through our interactions. Romans 8, 10 through 11 states, But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Amen. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Now, not when you're dead later. Now. Our mortal bodies will be redeemed completely 
later on. There is an in-between time that we're experiencing at this point until Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom for, uh, in, in fullness, right? But in the meantime, due to the righteousness of Christ over us, we can be brought into and experience uh, abundant life in him. Even now, we can experience the power of His resurrection. Philippians 3.10, the power of His resurrection in our bodily existence. In Christ, we are and can be unshackled and brought to the surface even now, realizing this life isn't an illusion to be escaped from, but this life is important and it's good. The physical embodied life right now can, be experience, can experience the kingdom of God. And we can be participant in bringing that life of the kingdom of God to other people by our responsibility with our bodies, by being good with them. It is a satanic ploy that we should want to sit back down and reshackle ourselves once again, living lives which never can satisfy. But we're tempted towards that all the time. So let's, let's leave here today with two verses in mind, or two pass, short passages in mind. And I want you, I challenge you, to memorize these verses over the coming weeks. Write them down later on, on a, on a note card or something like that. Keep them in your car, keep them in your bathroom, on the mirror. Whatever it is, just, just read these to yourselves as, as you go through your week. And get this in your heart, right? Like, tattoo it on your heart. You know what I mean? So let's take, let's take a moment and read these out loud together. I'm going to start, and you just follow along. It's up on the screen there. Ready? One, two, three. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Everybody comes to the pastor, what does God want me to do? Get busy on it. I can't answer those questions. What does God want me to do? I don't, what have you been doing? How have you been walking with Him? Because as soon as you start surrendering yourself to Him, He will bring about clarity in many, many ways. Sometimes He doesn't bring about clarity because He wants you to trust Him. Amen, right? Second one, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Ready? One, two, three. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. So I urge you to commit these two short uh, passages to memory. And I think if you do that, if you start that process of memorizing Scripture, you're going to see your life change. Because it's not just about memorizing and being wrote and, oh, I can repeat it. No, it comes up. It like uh, Robert was talking about this in the community group the other day. When you're facing life, if you've memorized Scripture, when you're facing life, when you're tempted or when you find something difficult, it pops out of you. It just bleeds out of you. It has power. There is power in this word. It is not just some blank, you know, like word, like ink on a page. There is something going on here. This is the living word of God that has been incarnated in us. So let it do its job, right? Let it transform you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you 
despite the wordy pastor, we thank you that you have blessed us with this. You've blessed us with your presence, that you've, you've created this whole kit and caboodle and you've called it good and you said it's very good when it came to us and that you love us and that you interact with us and you mingle with us and you, you walk with us and you were born in a dirty, bloody smelly stable and you died and you bled out on a cross in the dirt and the, with splinters in your back and thorns in your forehead and you went to a grave and you laid on a slab and three days later you broke out of that and then Thomas stuck his finger in your side and you said I'm hungry give me something to eat because you rose again in your body it's powerful for us it says that there's no, no weird spiritual stuff that we've got to go finding off in this ethereal jungle someplace. But it is right here, accessible to us right now, that you are living and breathing along with us and you're calling us out just to walk with you. And so we ask that we would do that strongly and well.